Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week, we were able to report on something that's been in the works for years, passage of the Great American Outdoors Act, with its six and a half billion dollars to help the National Park Service whittle down its roughly $12 billion maintenance backlog. It's a great infusion of dollars, but a lot more money is going to be needed on a regular basis to get the backlog down to a manageable level. We also told you about a possible case of arson at Glacier National Park that claimed the Ford Creek Patrol Cabin that was built back in 1928. There also was a story about vandalism at Grand Teton National Park in which a group of dirt bike and mini bike riders shredded a field that was being restored to native vegetation after decades as a hayfield. Those and other stories about national parks and protected areas can be found at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we continue our look at residential environmental learning centers. These nonprofit facilities connect people to nature, but they are tasked with serving a greater good to foster the development of better global citizens. Lynn Riddick spoke to Katie McClary of the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont. This is an organization with roots in outdoor learning that go back some 50 years. And throughout those years, the Institute has always looked for ways to expand to a broader audience through partnerships with the park, the community, schools, and colleges. We leave you this week with a short glimpse of visiting Crater Lake National Park during these days of COVID-19. Travelers Becky Latson visited the park this past week and talks about what she saw, including the Comet Neowise. The Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont offers residential outdoor learning programs for all ages and professional development opportunities for educators and other adult learners. Joining me to talk about the organization is Katie McClary, President and CEO. Hi, Katie. Welcome to The Traveler. Hi, Lynn. Thank you so much for allowing us to join. I want to start with a sentence in your most recent annual report, which caught my eye. Quote, in times of increased stress on our environment and in our daily lives, we believe that education is the most powerful tool we have in saving the places we love. Yet we also know that these places we love can save us in return. Tell me more about your organization and how it ties into this philosophy. It's funny that you mentioned I wrote that over a year ago, and today it starts to even ring more true, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what what we have always known at Tremont is that education is a powerful tool to connect people to nature. It really allows them to open up this sense of curiosity and discovery and wonder. And it's when you're in that mindset that you start to really explore and experience your world differently. But we also know that when you experience your world differently, it gives back to you. And so that is so much of our philosophy and that we are not just necessarily trying to teach people about nature and that we're not trying to just have them memorize the names of trees or the names of flowers. Certainly that's part of it, but we want to teach people to be curious about nature. And that's truly where the magic starts to happen. Tell me more about the organization. We celebrated our 50th anniversary last year. 
So Tremont has a long history of providing residential environmental education programs in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We were originally created through a partnership with the Park Service, as well as a local college, Maryville College. Um, at that time, the Park Service had some facilities that had been used for the Job Corps, and they were trying to decide what to do with it. Again, this was about 50 years ago, and so environmental education education movement was taking hold and some intrepid people got together and recognized that there was a need for an environmental outdoor education center in the park and made it happen. So we have been fortunate to have a long history of partnership within the national park as well as local education centers and colleges and schools. The Institute is located four miles from the Townsend, Tennessee entrance to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Can you describe the setting of your campus? Sure. Townsend is affectionately called the peaceful side of the Smokies. And so when you enter, you do see a lot of um, hotels, but not quite the glitzy, glamorous side that, that people come to expect in terms of Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge. So the entrance is a little bit more, I'm trying to think of the, the word, it's, it's a little bit more quiet. And when you enter the park, most people are headed on their way to Cades Cove. But just as you turn into the park, there's a, a left turn and you go up the what's called Tremont Road. That is right along the Middle Prong River, the entire stretch. And it's such an incredibly gorgeous piece of river. When you think about the Smokies, you think about these blue ridge lines with haze, but you also think about these rich, lush streams with cascading boulders and green moss. And, and that's really what you experience on your drive into Tremont. We talk about when school groups or when adult groups come, you, you almost feel like you're being hugged by the mountains around you because they feel close and they feel inviting and they feel warm. And so it's a really incredible place. We call it Walker Valley because it was there was a family that settled in the valley back in the 1800s, and his name was Will Walker. Of course, there have been many people who had lived in that area before then, but that, that did become named after him. And so we talk very lovingly about our home in Walker Valley. It's a place where education has been a part of its history, and we are excited to be able to continue that education through the work that we do and the outreach that we do as well. You've recently expanded with the purchase of 200 additional acres in Townsend, is that correct? That is. We purchased that land last year. We have long recognized that there are some challenges to the physical space that we program out of in terms of our layout and our design. And we really have thought of ourselves as being in a position to provide education to a broader audience and as such, wanted to build a second campus that could help us allow to reach more people in diverse ways, as well as providing unique opportunities that we couldn't quite provide in our current setting um, that we look forward to providing in the future. Let me ask you about specific building plans. With our second campus, we have decided to pursue the living building challenge. It is something that other residential environmental learning centers have done across the nation. And I think it really speaks to the future of what environmental education can potentially be because living buildings are inspiring a new generation of sustainability 
minded citizens. It's a new framework for building. And it says, instead of doing bad for the environment, how can buildings do good? And when buildings do good, how does that then impact the participants? How does it ask them to perform both within the space, but also to take action when they go home to create a better world? So it's this whole paradigm shift to say, what if our buildings did more for the environment? And when you think about it in that term, do you think about the opportunity for change and the opportunity that this type of education, when you do environmental education in a place that is the most innovative, the greenest building that is really doing good for the environment, how much more impact can you have? So it's a really exciting thing for Tremont to think about in the next 50 years, in our next 50 years, what kind of impact do we want to have? And we want to have a really big impact. We believe that time is now, that outdoor education is more critical than ever, that the education in our communities needs to rely more heavily on teaching in outdoor spaces. And we believe that we can provide that type of instruction. And we believe that it's important to do so in a space that, that walks a walk and doesn't just you know, ask people that, to come for a little quick experience, but that really resonates with them and sticks with them. Let's talk a little bit about some of the programs that you offer. Are they all coordinated out of your main facility there in Tremont? They are. And we talk about, you know, the building the second campus, but it's also important to note that the main facility is truly our home. So that's where, you know, the heart of our operations lie and um, we're excited to continue that. We do have all of our administrative buildings in the national park. We have a small gift shop that is open most of the time to the public. It's currently closed due to the, the pandemic, but we provide visitor services as we can and really run the organization out of that one space. Talk a little bit about some of the programs for young people. The majority of our programs in terms of number of participants is our school programs. Those are residential, providing three-night and five-night experiences typically, where we serve students from over 13 states. We bring them to the National Park. We get them an opportunity to really live and learn in the National Park. They sleep in our dorms. They eat meals family style as a group. They go outside for classroom and, and, and outdoor learning. We will go experience salamanders and, and investigate nature's mysteries. We do all sorts of stuff on our campus. Do you have any programs that um, you think maybe make a bigger impression on kids than others? I think what we find with our programs is for students, they all take individual things away from the programs. Sure, they like to get down and dirty and they like to you know explore in, in the creeks. We do things like we create rock paint and that's typically a favorite. But when we often ask at the end of an experience what kids are taking home with them, we find that it truly varies. Sure, we might get the, the common answers of, I didn't know I could live without my cell phone for four days, or I never knew that the National Park was so diverse. You get a broad range of activities, but I think for kids, it really is truly just about getting outside, getting to explore with their peers, and also getting to explore with their teachers. We have an education style that is very different from the traditional school model where, you know, many teachers get up at the, the front of the classroom and, you know, they teach lessons. Well, here they learn together. The teachers are learning alongside their students. And when you create that dynamic, some of those takeaways aren't just, oh, I learned about salamanders. It's, 
oh, I, I now see, I saw my teacher in pajamas and I, I take, you know, I see them as a, a different person. And so the dynamic between the classroom begins to change as well. And so it's a really unique experience. And when you start to think about, you know, it's not just a field trip, it's not just a science lesson that these kids are learning, but it's really a holistic experience that they take with them in a variety of ways. Where does your staff come from? Our staff comes from a lot of different places. Typically, most those staff are in a environmental education degree or science degree. They might have their master's. I joke often that a lot of our, our teacher naturalists have higher, a higher degree than I do. And they might have expertise in very specific areas of, of ecology. We have some that are expert birders, some that are you know, involved in reptiles and amphibians. There's all sorts of different different ways that we find these staff that really have the, the passion and the drive to do this type of education. We do a lot of recruiting through some of the more traditional models in terms of schools that we work with and colleges and universities that we have relationships with. But we also tend to get staff from other nature centers, you know, as they are, are coming through graduate programs through other nature centers, they might be aware of Tremont and looking to continue work in this field. Can you tell me about some of the programs you have for adult learners? Our most popular program for adult learners is our Southern Appalachian Naturalist Certification Program. That is a cluster of courses that you can take, and it is they're offered on the weekends. You can choose one, you can choose eight, you can choose as many as you would like and as many that can fit into your schedule. We have a partnership with the University of Tennessee who actually will provide a certificate once you complete the eight core classes. These each have an individual focus. So you might be studying mammals, birds, Southern Appalachian ecology, we have one that focuses on naturalist skills. There's a whole different host of options that you can do within this program. We also have hiking groups that come. We have Road Scholars and Sierra Club will do a hiking trip with us. We have photography workshops that are very popular for adults where you can come and really learn how to capture the beauty of the Smokies. So we try and offer a little bit for everyone, knowing that learners of all ages have the opportunity to live and learn in the national park. Now, it's worth mentioning that you have reached some 1,700 adults and 4,600 children in 2018 and provided a total of 24,380 collective days that Tremont participants spent living and learning in the national park. You have students of all ages. Where do they come from? Do you work with specific school districts and colleges? We have a relationship with many different school districts and colleges that have developed throughout the year. So when we talk in terms of participants, yes, I'm glad you mentioned that we we might serve or work with 6,000 individual participants. But when you think about it in terms of user days, that number increases to close to 25,000. Because we're not just having these short three-hour workshops or half-day, all-day programs. We're really being able to reach these participants in 
immersive ways for longer amounts of time where we as a residential environmental education center really start to see those benefits come to life. We have schools that come from nearby, from you know, just down the road. We also have schools that come from St. Louis. We have an entire school district that sends all of their fifth graders from the St. Louis area to Tremont. And it's become part of their culture. And we love when we see that because we recognize that siblings will come from year to year. We have second generations of people coming. You know, as a parent, you might have gone to Tremont in your sixth grade trip, and now your child is coming. And so we love when we have that history of serving school districts and schools for a long time. With that said, we also are trying to find ways to reach new people and bring in new voices and new participants that may not otherwise get a chance to come to our program. And we can talk about that in a minute, but first I wanted to get into the COVID-19 situation. I scrolled down your website and I saw one cancellation after another. Backcountry Ecological Expedition, Firefly Camp, Smokies Science Investigations Camp, and it's, it's really heartbreaking. How are you adjusting programs for this summer and fall and or creating new ones? It truly is heartbreaking. We are people, people. We're educators. Most of of our staff really find joy and fulfillment ourselves when we are able to teach. So for us, not being able to program has been one of the most heartbreaking things about being about working through this pandemic. We tried to salvage our summer programs. Unfortunately, we weren't able to provide enough assurance both with our staff and with the participants to, for all of us to feel comfortable. So as an organization, we decided to cancel our summer programs for the summer of 2020. We have been able to experience some programs in the digital world. We created a virtual camp-in experience over Memorial Day weekend. And that was an opportunity for us to kind of reimagine how we deliver experiential education. It wasn't that we were trying to, you know, make people feel things from from a, a digital sense, but it was asking them to go out and explore and feel things in their own yard. So that program had about 200 families enroll over across the country. And like I mentioned, we asked them to go outside to explore as a family, to explore as a team. There was a scavenger hunt component for it. And that really allowed us to kind of share in that joy. As we had a virtual campfire, we got to, you know, talk about the experiences. We've also been collaborating with our local park partners, with Friends of the Smokies and GSMA, which is Great Smoky Mountains Association as well as Discover Life in America. Collectively, us four are the nonprofit partners that work with Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And we've all come together to help the Park Service deliver their parks as classrooms in a digital way. And we've developed a website called Smokies at Home. And that's Smokies with three E's that stand for Explore, Entertain, and Escape. And so that has been a really unique way that all of the partners have come together to share in the Park Service's mission and to deliver that throughout the challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. What are you looking at toward the fall? Is it too early to say? 
Yes and no. So what we recognize is that we have control over some programs. So the adult programs are photo workshops, our Southern Appalachian Naturalist Certification courses. Those are very small groups. They're ones that we believe we can space out. We can provide the social distancing. We can provide all of the guidelines and meet all of the guidelines set forth by the CDC. So we are continuing to plan on operating those and finding ways that we might be able to be creative and and continue to program in new ways as well. We are still hoping that we can program with schools. We recognize, however, that some schools are having to address these challenges at a community level, and therefore some school districts are canceling field trips across the board. So when it comes to schools, it's a very individual decision that we are unfortunately less able to predict. So for now, we're, we're still hopeful. We're still working to do our part to make sure that we have done everything we can to make our programs as safe as possible, knowing that most of the teaching that we do goes on outside. And we're also taking the opportunity to ask ourselves if we are not programming seven days a week, 24 hours a day like we traditionally are, what can we do in this space where we can reach students and teachers in their own communities? Can we continue to provide the teacher development that would otherwise happen on our campus in their own schoolyard? We know at a time when our outdoor learning education model provides physical health benefits, mental health benefits, social and emotional health benefits, we also know that it provides public health benefits when you are able to keep people outside, get them engaged, and take advantage of the outdoor learning spaces that some teachers don't necessarily feel comfortable doing at this point. If we can help provide and build that confidence with teachers, then we want to be able to position ourselves in a way to provide that service. Looking at your last annual report, I see revenue from programs topping $1.7 million dollars and $262,000 coming from donations and grant income. How are these figures comparing to what you're looking at so far this year? Um, How are donations coming in? Well, in 2019, we saw about 2.4 million in total revenue. Um, 1.7 was program revenue and about 372,000 were from grants and contributions. As you can imagine with the lack of school groups coming and, and programming, we've seen the program revenue drop off. Contributions have remained somewhat steady, but we, for very strategic reasons, have waited to put a broad appeal out. We're actually just finalizing an appeal that will be going out to our supporters and our stakeholders this week. Originally, we we knew that we had a need, but we also knew that there were so many people in our communities that were struggling to even get basic services. And it didn't feel necessarily right for us to be asking for continued donations. But now we know that not only are people hurting and are people in need of the type of programming that we provide, there's also people who are starting to recognize that what we do has so much potential for the future. And so we are hoping that with our current appeal, we really aren't just asking for people to bail us out, but we're asking for people to invest in us because 
residential environmental learning centers, we believe are essential. We know that we are able to provide critical environmental education programs at a time when people are needing to have that social and emotional connection to their learning spaces and with each other. So we are optimistic that we will be able to continue to rely on our supporters to help us through this very difficult time. We are still seeing grants, many of which had been in the works prior to the pandemic. We are still seeing those being awarded. People are optimistic about us being able to continue to the work that we do and find ways that we can reinvent the mechanism that we provide this education. We believe that we will continue to draw in additional revenue and we are hoping that very soon we will be able to get back to the point where we can draw enough program revenue to help sustain us for the future. Have you been able to get help through the payroll protection program and funding assistance through other sources? We have. We were very fortunate with the leadership of our board and my predecessors to have a cash reserve available to us. We also applied for the PPP funding and did receive that. However, our eight-week period wrapped up the middle of June. And so at that time, we did decide to make some cutbacks in terms of our staff. We have also been very fortunate to have had financial support from the Park Service, as well as the Friends of the Smokies. They have really stepped up in some ways that have been both unprecedented, but also incredibly impactful for our organization. So we have been both delighted by the support that we've received, but we are still very much in a critical financial situation and are looking for ways that we can continue to find support in the future. The state of outdoor environmental learning centers is grim and the future is uncertain. This is from a survey done in April by the Lawrence Hall of Science at the University of California at Berkeley on the impact of the pandemic. The results among 995 environmental education organizations that responded to the survey indicated that if social distancing continues through the end of 2020, these organizations would be looking at over $600 million in lost revenue with 30,000 furloughed or reduced staff. And an estimated 11 million students will have missed out on outdoor learning opportunities by the end of the year. Did your institute participate in the survey and what did you make of it? We did participate. Some of those 11 million students counted in that survey are ours, people that we're not going to be able to serve. I thought the survey was done very, very well done. It addressed both the impact that environmental and outdoor education programs have across the country. It talks about the value, but it also puts very clear the fact that many of us are struggling. Many will not make it through this pandemic. And we recognize that a time when our mission of connecting people to nature, our mission and the work that we do is needed now more than ever. But because of these social distancing guidelines, because of the pandemic, our programs have never been more out of reach. So when we discuss and when we as leaders of these environmental education programs discuss our our situation, we 
don't see our future necessarily as being uncertain, we see the way in which we're going to get to that future uncertain. I think all of us really truly believe that the work that we do has so much importance in preparing our students and our participants to be better global citizens of the world. We know that the type of learning in terms of you know, allowing people to understand the systems in which we operate, allowing them to understand the world, that is a critical component to learning even simple things, or not simple things, but even learning why things like pandemics happen. And so for us, we are almost literally screaming from the mountaintops, we're here, we're here. We have value and we have importance and we see the ways in which we can be a part of the future of education. We see how the next 50 years, we are critical to so many different aspects of education. But again, we don't know yet how we're gonna make it through the current pandemic to get to that future. So the survey talks about that in depth and talks about the fact that we need people to support us now. We need people to say, you guys are too essential. We cannot let you fail because the work that you do is important. The work that you do builds so much of what we need for the future. Yeah, the survey um, put out some recommendations um, by the North American Association for Environmental Education and some other organization leaders sort of suggesting uh, ways organizations like yours can stay afloat. Did you look at these recommendations? Have you adopted any? I know you've made a whole lot of changes so far, but um, were these recommendations inspiring to you? They were. I think that, you know, we we sometimes, due to the pandemic or other other factors, we sometimes feel as individuals that we're having to recreate the wheel, that we're having to you know, solve all of these problems individually. But what that survey speaks to is the fact that we're in this together. We do have people going through very similar things. And if we can bring that voice together and amplify that voice, then we might be able to help, you know, the others. Tremont has a very long reputation. We have a very good reputation for the work that we do and the partnerships that we have in the Smokies, as well as with other residential environmental learning centers. But there's other smaller organizations who do very similar work who don't have that platform that we might. And so when we can all come together and when we can all, you know, reach out to our government officials, our local officials, and really, you know, push the idea that that we are too critical to fail, then I think that we find strength in that. And I think that we find, you know, at least a little bit more um, assurance that we can be resilient through this challenging time. And we'll be back with more with Katie McClary, President and CEO of the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont, after this break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for 
understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. I'm talking with Katie McClary, who is president and CEO of the Great Smoky Mountains Institute at Tremont. Do you feel like there are any misconceptions out there that you wrangle with as an environmental learning center? I think there can be some misconceptions. For us, oftentimes it can be as simple as a principal may think of Tremont as a field trip and, oh, it's a science program. Well, yes, it does have some science value. And yes, if you bring your students to our programs, you're probably going to be able to check off a lot of that common core curriculum for your, for your science. But it really is more than that. It's more than a field trip. It's an opportunity to really come to a shared space and have a shared experience with your peers and with your teachers. And that's when we start to see all of those additional benefits coming into play. We start to talk about the social and emotional benefits. I had an experience where we had a school group from inner city Nashville come to Tremont and I was speaking to one of the guidance counselors and I guess his title was probably more of a crisis counselor and the school was a mixed school. They had students that were bused in. They also had students from a very affluent area of Nashville and they were waiting on their bus and they were leaving and I was walking by and I said, how was it? How was your trip? And he just looked at me and he said, If I could do my job in this place every single day, I can't imagine the difference that would make. And that stuck with me because conflict resolution doesn't always happen in a guidance counselor's office. Conflict resolution comes when you build trust with each other, when you have a new perspective about people, when you see them in different ways, and you can start to understand that people have good intentions most of the time. And so, you know, we we see that happen in our dorms. We see that happen in the field. We see it happen in the dining hall, in the activity center. We know that we are not just a field trip. We know that we are really making huge strides in people's lives. And that type of change, for some, these outdoor experiences are formative. They may not have had time in the outdoors in this way, but for some who may have spent their life playing in their backyard, these experiences can still be transformative because it's a shared experience that they build together. I want to talk a little bit about diversity of your population of students and faculty and things you are doing to address issues of racial equality, inclusion, and access to Smoky Mountains National Park. I understand that 70% of participants there receive financial aid. Yes. So we recognized years ago that a majority of our students came from schools and they pretty much self-selected. They would find out about our programs. They wanted to come to our programs. We said, great, let's put you on the calendar. Come to our programs. 
but that wasn't addressing the need of those people who didn't necessarily see themselves in our space. They didn't feel like our programs were accessible to them. So we have started to address that. And I will say we're very early on. We have a lot of work to do, but we started to address that by bringing on some AmeriCorps VISTA volunteers. And they, the whole grant was to help them build capacity to, to bring in new schools, kids in underserved and underperforming areas, kids in urban areas. And we recognized very quickly that it's not just a financial barrier to bring these people to a residential program in the Smokies. There's also perceived barriers. A lot of these parents didn't want their kids to go to the back country, to the woods. It didn't seem safe. A lot of teachers didn't see themselves as being able to experience that type of learning with their students. They didn't feel comfortable or confident in that time. And so our VISTA volunteers were really able to be present in communities to listen, to understand why our programs may not be culturally relevant, to understand why people might be hesitant to want to come to the Smoky Mountains for a three-night or a five-night experience. And we started listening and we learned a lot. We learned that there's a lot of work that we need to be doing and a lot of ways that we need to be open to letting our programs look differently than what we might have otherwise originally thought. We also are doing the work in terms of, of really asking the right questions of our staff through some internal discussions. About a year ago, we started looking at our own cultural relevancy. We started doing our own equity and diversity and inclusion discussions. We brought on people from the outside to help facilitate these discussions. And, you know, like many other people, we found that we, we have a lot of work to do. Our staff aren't diverse. Our board is not diverse. We recognize that and we want to change that. But we also want to do it in a way that is truly genuine and that is open to bringing in these voices. How difficult do you think it would be to grow these efforts to reach out to more kids and families that face obstacles from systemic problems in their communities, given you know, organizations like yours are in survival mode. I'll be honest, it's extremely challenging at this point. When we are struggling to bring in program revenue, then we are also challenged to find those people to, to help in a very, you know, financial way. We're struggling to bring in the money that funds the people that don't have the money. And I say that very matter-of-factly, but it really is true. You know, our business model relies on bringing in program revenue so that then we can provide scholarships. We do do still have grants that have been awarded. We just received a $50,000 grant from Volkswagen and the Conservation Fund to help support a program that we have been providing with, that we have been providing a local high school. And it's a cohort model. It's called the Environmental and Community Leaders Fellowship. And that was a pilot program where we brought students from underserved areas to have repeated experiences, not just in the park, but also to do things in their community. And that was so successful that we decided to seek out a grant that would continue that to build pathways. So now not only are we working with high school students, but we're also working on elementary school students and working with middle school students, trying to create this pathway of opportunities 
And then we put into the grant to provide internship funding for some of, of these high schoolers to really continue that. That work is so critical and we believe that is so much a part of our mission, but we currently are having to rely on grant funds in order to sustain that. And when we are in survival mode financially, it makes it even more difficult to continue that mission. Katie, thank you for your time today. I wish you well, and I hope that you are able to keep up the good work at the Great Smoky Mountain Institute at Tremont. Thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, a training center, a conference center, and a leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences that it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. During this summer of COVID-19, many of us have been stuck at home, unfortunately, or within a a short parameter of our home base. Becky Latson was fortunate to take a quick trip down to Crater Lake National Park in southwestern Oregon from her base camp in Yakima, and she joins us today to tell us a little bit about what she saw. Hi, Becky. Hi there, Kurt. How are you? I'm doing well. Yourself? Doing pretty well. You you made it out to the parks. But before we get into the the nitty-gritty of your visit to the parks, you have to tell me about the most exciting thing, which to me was photographing Neowise, the comet that's blazed across the sky. It was awesome. And that was one of my uh, plans when I got there. And uh, I went out that first night. And I'm glad I did because the rest of the evenings that I went out were kind of on the hazy side. But I knew I wanted to get a pic of uh, the stars and Crater Lake and Neowise, and I had already done a a perimeter of all the overlooks around Crater Lake, so I just picked one because I wasn't really sure where Neowise was going to pop up. Turned out that I lucked out. Several other people, other photographers were there waiting uh, for night to come too, and uh, I think I got some stellar shots. Pardon the pump. I can't wait to see him because um, here in in Utah, my wife and I went out and um, we saw a very hazy Neowise, um, even with um, binoculars. It just wasn't as spectacular as some of the photography I've seen from places like Bryce Canyon and uh, some parks along the East Coast. Some years ago, um, my my youngest son, Sean, and I made it out to Crater Lake on a a Western Park swing, and it happened to coincide with the uh, supermoon. And unfortunately, 
I was too tired by the end of the day to, to go up to the, the rim and, and get a nice photo of it. And uh, I, I'm really kicking myself because I saw some incredible photos of, of the supermoon coming up over, over Crater Lake. So I'm impressed that you were able to, to get out and uh, stay out after dark and get some great shots and look forward to seeing them. Um, I'm curious, of course, in this age of COVID-19, social distancing and masks. Um, what did you see there in the park? Well, you know, first of all, Oregon has a, a statewide mask mandate that you need to wear masks when you're going into enclosed areas uh, and businesses, restaurants. And uh, Crater Lake National Park also requires masks to be worn whenever you go into any of their buildings in the park. And they plastered that those signs of that all over walls and windows and doors so it's hard to miss so if you wanted to check in to crater lake lodge or uh your cabins at mazama village then you had to wear a mask in order to go in there as such i saw you know lots of people wearing masks i didn't hear any griping about it they just knew that uh to get into the park, to get into those buildings, they needed to mask up. I saw quite a few people wearing masks at the overlooks, especially the more popular overlooks, and quite a few people were wearing masks along the trails. I walked up to, walked up, hiked up to Watchman Summit, and the first part of the trail is pretty wide, so you're at a good social distance, but as you climb higher, the trail becomes narrower and it's more difficult to stay that six feet apart if you're passing a person uh, going sure. the other way. So people were wearing masks on the trail too. Now there were still some holdouts, people not wearing masks, but for the most part, I saw more people wearing masks than I did not. Um, that leads to, of course, a new kind of trash out there because I picked up quite a few masks that were uh, left on the trail. They probably just you know, blew out of people's pockets or something. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Now, um, unfortunately you made that long trip down to, to Crater Lake National Park and, um, a lot of the, uh, activities that you might've taken advantage of were, um, on hiatus this summer. Um, for instance, uh, the boat tour around Crater Lake, uh, my son and I were able to do that and it's a, a wonderful boat trip. And, uh, we got off at Wizard Island and, and spent some time on Wizard Island, which is, a interestingly enough, a, a cinder cone within a, a volcanic cinder cone, so to speak. Um, that had to be a little disappointing that you couldn't take advantage of that. I knew uh, beforehand, because I checked the website, I knew that I would not be able to do that. I would have liked to, because it would have been really cool to hike up uh, Wizard Island. But uh, they don't have boat rides for this season. And the visitor centers are also closed because of the COVID pandemic. And the buildings that are open uh, are opened with modified hours. Was, was the lodge open? The lodge is open. To get in, you need to wear a mask. And the check-in clerks, they are all masked up. They have sneeze guards. And the restaurant is still open in the lodge, but it's only open to those people that are staying overnight to the lodge. If you were a visitor coming in for a day, you would not be able to go have lunch in the restaurant. That's interesting. I wonder how, uh, did, did they spread out the tables? Were you able to tell that? Were you staying at the lodge? No, I did not stay at the lodge. I actually stayed in uh, one of the cabins at Mazama Village, which is about seven miles uh, south of the Crater Lake Rim. Right and downhill. the cabins are uh, 
<laughs> cabin is kind of a misnomer. They're separate buildings, but they're more like quadplexes. There's right. four rooms to each cabin, and each room has its own separate entrance. And uh, I brought my own food. I just, you know, I'm a little paranoid because I have underlying health issues, and I live with my sister and my nephew, and, and my sister has underlying issues. So I just brought my own food with me. So I didn't eat anywhere except with the food I brought. That said, there are the restaurants uh, and snack shops in Mazama Village are open so that you can get food to take out. And uh, I noticed that they were serving people outside underneath uh, patio type umbrellas. I didn't see if they were spaced, you know, six feet apart, but I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that they were. So yeah. I'm going out on a limb, and I'm assuming that the Crater Lake uh, Lodge restaurant also has tables spaced out. I did not go in and check. Yeah, yeah. So you've been working on some stories that we're going to be rolling out on the, the Traveler in the, the coming weeks. Um, what are you going to be talking about? Well, my next uh, story is going to be how you can have a safe and enjoyable visit to a national park keeping yourself safe and keeping uh, other people, staff, concessionaire workers, rangers safe as well. That's going to be my next article. And then after that, I'm going to have uh, an article about things you can see and photograph at Crater Lake and the best times to do that. Nice, nice. As far as NEO-wise, are you planning a separate article on that or is that going to be part of uh, one of your photography articles? I don't know yet. That could be a separate article, but I may just include it in one of my uh, in one of my main articles. I will tell you that if you're looking for Neowise, and I learned this firsthand, you can't always see it if you are looking straight at it. You kind of have to move your eyes a little bit to the side, and then you can see a much better outline of the comet. Interesting. Interesting. Well, um, if you don't catch it now, uh, another 6,800 years, it'll be right back and uh, we can try again. All right, Becky, thanks a lot for giving that little tease on um, what you saw at uh, Crater Lake and about what you're going to be writing about. And we certainly look forward to your stories. You're welcome, Kurt. Have a good day. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can help us with these podcasts by donating to The Traveler. It's a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that relies heavily on its listeners and readers for support. You can find a donate button at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.